So this morning we continue in the lectionary assigned gospel passage. If you weren't here last week, I do encourage you to go back and listen to to that sermon because it unpacks the the first several verses, really the first of two acts that are really important to understand the movement of Luke chapter 4. But as a way of recap for those who weren't here or even were but weren't paying close enough attention, um, we are reminded that in the beginning of this passage in Luke 4, actually verse 14, Jesus is headed home. He is garnered attention as he's moved through the countryside, preaching and proclaiming. Now he heads back to Nazareth, the place that, that saw him grow up. We talked about last week how when we head home, people expect us to be the same. They haven't been on the journey that we have been on. It struck me that Jesus in the synagogue that day, he claimed his power in a new way. It struck me that we ought not expect everyone to appreciate or understand that when we claim our own. The question, though, that we're asked in this passage from Luke is, what does a faith look like that has been anointed by the Spirit in baptism and shown to be faithful in the midst of trial? What does that faith look like? It is Spirit-anointed and resolved And it has a keen focus on the marginalized. This faith is focused on the poor, those who are in prison, those who are blind, those who are oppressed. On Saturday mornings when I was young, my dad and I would hop in his Buick. We'd head to Hardee's to grab a couple biscuits. If we were lucky, we'd catch Paul Harvey spinning a yarn on the radio. He'd tell a beautiful story, or at least half of it, And then we'd have a commercial break, and then he'd come back, and he'd pause, and he'd say, and now the rest of the story. So we join back with the gospel of Luke in the 21st verse of the fourth chapter. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. And were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. 
but he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. So last week, the cliffhanger, the dramatic visual of all the eyes of the synagogue being fixed on Jesus. Y'all probably don't do this, but I do it often. Sometimes I replay a conversation or an interaction in my mind, and I think to myself, gosh, if you would have just left it there, if you would have just stopped talking, it would have been just fine. But you just had to get one more word in. There's a chance that if Jesus would have just left it there, with all eyes fixed on him, he would have been okay. People would have spoken about the commotion at the synagogue for sure. They would have gossiped a little bit about Jesus, how he had changed so much from the boy that they knew. But in all likelihood, he wouldn't have ended up on the edge of a cliff outside his hometown with a whole mob of people ready to throw him off. But that's how it goes with a prophet. They can't keep their mouth shut. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. Doctor, cure yourself. These words in Luke 4, foreshadowing some words that we would read later in another gospel. As Jesus hangs on the cross, those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, cure yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The people who just a few verses earlier had been amazed by Jesus, would soon deride and forsake. But what is it that brought them such quick anger? The truth is this, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine in all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon. The truth is also this, there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. To interpret these words of Jesus a little bit, the widow of Zarephath is a Gentile from Sidon, Naaman, a Gentile from Syria, and yet God came to them. People outside the prescribed group God came and provided through them. God came and healed. The people, people that knew Jesus better than probably anyone else, were imprisoned by their own belief about who was in and who was out. They wanted a prophet, but they didn't want the message of the prophet. Soren Kierkegaard 
famously shares that the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand it, we are obligated to act accordingly. The people people wanted a prophet until they didn't. Until the prophet was to come to them and tell them that indeed this God of all creation is at work in places they would scarcely imagine. Here's the beautiful part. The good news of the gospel does not stop being the good news because we are uncomfortable with it. When the people of God heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up and they drove him out of town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off of it. When the assumptions of inclusion are challenged, one ought to expect resistance. Jesus certainly did. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. It turns out, beloved, that the good news cannot be held back, even when threatened by violence. So what are we to do with the rest of this story? This hometown boy returning, sharing a message that is not well received. A message of inclusion that is radical in its nature. How is the church? particularly a church that imagines itself inclusive, supposed to hear this story? How are we, the people that God has seen fit to call to Idlewild Presbyterian Church in 2022, to hear this, the rest of the story? How is it that we hear this story when we have worked for justice for so many already? Open doors, discerned difficult paths, and walked in them. How are we to hear of this rage and this violence? Perhaps it's more simple than we might imagine or than Kierkegaard might challenge us to see. Perhaps it's as simple as sitting in this place and asking a simple question. Who's not here? Who's not here? In the pews or online, who's not here? The doors are open, the lights are on, who's not here? Perhaps it's as simple as a a simple exercise for us or for you. Some 245 of y'all, if I counted correctly, Perhaps it's as simple as you imagining who's not here for you. Who comes to mind that's not in a pew beside you this day? We ask this question because it is the challenge of the prophet. Who do we not want to be included in this place, who, if they were included, might even well within us anger and rage. 
We ask the question because it's critical. We are a people that desire a prophet's message, and then we have to listen to it. The good news of the gospel is that it is not held back by our limited view of it. Not threat of violence, not discomfort. The gospel and the good news moves forward whether we might see it or not. So instead of rising from our pews and pushing a savior to the edge of a cliff, we sit with it. Who is it that if they were here and present in this place, your heart would resist their presence? You might even be angry that they are here. If you're not feeling a bit uncomfortable, then you are not challenging yourself enough. Jesus returns to his hometown changed man, spirit anointed, faith challenged and resolved. And he tells the gathered people that indeed this message of good news is for the poor and the imprisoned. It is for the outcast. It is for the widow. It is for the leper. It is for all those that we might imagine it is not for. It is for them and it is for us. And as for all of creation, that's the good news of the gospel that Jesus introduces in a synagogue where he spent many a holy day. It's the good news that we are called to live into in this time and in this place. So may we rely not on our version of that good news, but on the prophetic witness of the one who took on flesh in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen.